Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. I am super pumped you're joining us today. Today we have Dr. Randall Rouser. He's a full, uh, professor of theology way up in Canada. And we're going to be talking about his new book, um, Timeless Truth in a World of Lies, uh, Fundamentalist Apologetics Satire. So Randall, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Hey Zach, I'm doing great. Uh, and I'm doing even better since I joined you. So it's good to be here. Good, good. Well, I'm super excited for today's conversation. We're going to look at your new book, which is like a critique of like Christian like fundamentalism. So before we get into like the topic and whatnot, Randall, can you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do? Sure. So I'm a professor of systematic theology and I'm at Taylor Seminary in Edmonton, Canada, which is part of a group called Kairos University, which is primarily based in the United States. I've been here for 18, no, I guess about 20 years now teaching, and I really enjoy it. I'm married, uh, one daughter, and so I mainly work in the area of systematic theology, apologetics, uh, Christian worldview. I've published 16 books. This is the 15th of the 16, and so it's it's also just uh, in terms of my own personal autobiography. I was raised in a conservative evangelical borderline fundamentalist cultural context, Christian context. So I know it from the inside. And so that was part of the prompting for me to, to write a book about it. That's awesome, Randall. Well, I really appreciate you. And I really love having you on um, because you're very open and honest about like different topics. Like I was just thinking about things we've talked about, like we, in the past, like it's like we've known each other for a few years now, we've talked about like eternal conscious torment and like biblical violence um like what is christian like progressive christianity like all these like super like controversial topics and i love your work because you're not afraid to like uh like approach hard topics so maybe Randall, do you want to just start to talk a little bit about like what got you into this work about christian fundamentalism um and yeah like what inspired this sure uh first of all i fundamentalism and maybe we can define it i guess but fundamentalism, it, it's one of these things that the term gets thrown around a lot. Sometimes it's thrown around as a four-letter word or an insult. Uh, I try to avoid that kind of use. Uh, I do want to give it a, a serious descriptive content. I don't want to go into a long history lesson here, but I do think it's helpful to understand the term and, and the movement. So it arises about a century ago in the teens of the 20th century, there was a growing concern among some Christians about the encroachment of quote-unquote liberalism within the wider Christian church in America particularly. And there was a fellow, a rich oilman named Lyman Stewart, who funded the writing of four pamphlets, well, 12 pamphlets that were published as four books eventually. But, and they included leading essayists who wrote essays in them, people like I believe Benjamin Warfield and James Orr, who were leading theologians of the time. And they're called the fundamentals, and they were meant to rally more conservative Christians against the encroachment of this growing liberalism. Uh, and so by the 1920s, fundamentalism as a movement had grown out of the writing of these works. And for the next five decades or so, from the 20s to the late 1970s, fundamentalism was very much a countercultural movement that sought to withdraw from wider uh, society and develop their own institutions, so the rise of the modern Bible school movement, Bible colleges, 
takes a root here before there were like university based divinity colleges and seminaries. And there is a shift instead to independent Bible colleges, to homeschooling, to developing things like young earth creationism or creation science and all these different institutions that were sought to withdraw from the world. Now, there were other conservative Christians who were kind of concerned about that, and they identified more with what they understood to be historic evangelicalism. And that's the movement that Carl Henry and Christianity Today magazine was broadly associated with. Well, around 1980, fundamentalists shifted their focus from being very countercultural and against the world and withdrawing from the world to engaging with the world. And they did so, uh, they became a large political voting bloc and were significant in getting Ronald Reagan elected in 1980. And from that point on, with the rise of what was called the Moral Majority and the Christian Coalition, they were this large socially and politically significant block of people that were seeking not to withdraw from the world, but now rather to engage with the world. And so that's the context in which I grew up with fundamentalism largely in the 1980s. Uh, and it impacted apologetics as well. So fundamentalist apologetics, as with some of the common hallmarks of fundamentalism, would have like very sharp distinctions between the in-group and out-group. Just as the title of the book I wrote captures with timeless truth in a world of lies, it's a very dichotomous picture where within the community, we are have light and truth and goodness. And outside of the fundamentalist Christian community, there's darkness and lies and wickedness. And often that gets buoyed on with a sort of warfare picture where we're at war with the world around us. And whether it's through social movements or political engagement or apologetics, we need to defeat the forces of evil, which are often very closely associated with uh, human beings and with secular institutions and so on. So that's uh, kind of the big sweep picture. And fundamentalism continues to be a culturally significant force today. And I'm not sure what prompted me to write the book, really, except that I just became interested in doing a satire of fundamentalism. So the idea of a satire is not making fun of people. This is one of the things we kind of want to get out of the way at the outset. Now, parody can be just a matter of making fun of. Parody is kind of aping or exaggerating something in order to make fun of it. It's often what you have, let's say, on Saturday Night Live something like that, you might have a parodies. But what a satire does is it will use irony or humor or exaggeration, sometimes to the point of absurdity, in order to provide a social and or institutional critique. And so what I did is I created a character, Christian Bellows, who is this fundamentalist Bible school president and apologist. And I used him as the framework in order to write a satire. So the book is ostensibly written by Christian Bellows, uh, but it is meant to be a satire of contemporary Christian fundamentalism. Mm. Okay, that's really helpful, Randall. So like in the book, when you're critiquing Christian fundamentalism, the idea you have in your mind is kind of like almost like an in-group, out-group kind of things where like um, a group of Christians where like they have all the truth, everything's right, and everyone that's like disagrees with them is kind of like maybe like wicked or like uh, in line with wickedness. And like those are like those ideas are just like totally wrong and depraved and like we want nothing to do with them, like that kind of like Christian movement is what you're getting at. So that's, as I said, yeah, it's a key part. That's what you can call the binary mindset. So a very sharp mindset between in-group and out-group. Now, here's something interesting to note about the binary mindset. Because I've been doing apologetics for 40 years, 
what I've seen time and again is that many people who are raised within a Christian fundamentalist binary mindset, uh, often they at some point become disenfranchised with it or disenchanted with it, and they end up leaving it behind. And often what I've seen is people who grew up Christian fundamentalist and then left it behind end up becoming atheist fundamentalist. Mm. In other words, uh, they now take the same binary mindset that they had learned from Christian fundamentalism, but they just flip the categories. Some years ago, I wrote a book with John Loftus. Now, John Loftus is a well-known atheist apologist, and we wrote this book, God or Godless. And he was raised in a fundamentalist Christian context, and he actually became a fundamentalist Christian pastor earlier in his life. And about 20 years ago, he had this, this experience of becoming disenchanted with Christianity and leaving it behind. And what I would see in John Loftus is he just flipped the categories. So he will now say that Christians are all irrational and Christianity is morally corrupt and there's nothing redeemable in Christianity, nothing good in it. And he has the same stark categories. In fact, in his book, Why I Became an Atheist, he gives this illustration. He says that, and he actually quotes this from somebody else, but the illustration is that uh, Christians, they're like drinking out of a fountain. They think it's the water of life. But in fact, once you leave Christianity and you look back, you see it's just a bubbling pot of sewage that they're partaking of. And that is how, how contemptuous John Loftus is of Christianity and Christians. He says it's, it's just like being in a cult. And what I would say is I think that John Loftus has just flipped the categories. Now, this is one of the reasons that it's so important to become aware of how inadequate the binary mindset is and to be able to critique it from within your belief community, not least because people often, when they end up leaving your belief community and apostatizing, to use that term, you know, rejecting Christianity, what they do is they might have retained those categories. And, and that really becomes a sort of intellectual enslavement. If, if you have these categories that you cannot seriously consider the opposing views of different people, and uh, you right away go to straw manning other people, and you assume that they are morally depraved or irrational or just ignorant because they disagree with you, well, then that makes it very difficult for, for people to reason with you. And so that's true whether you're a Christian fundamentalist or whether you're an atheistic one. Okay. Yeah, that's really helpful. So thank you for that, Randall. Um, so we, we've kind of like surveyed like what is Christian fundamentalism, fundamentalism with a heavy influence. Influ why can I not talk? A heavy emphasis on like uh, the idea of like well, someone will say like, well, I'm right. And you can't really like rationally like argue with people that you're wrong because you resort to like straw manning or like uh, like other like fallacies that you don't want to mess with. So if you could like steel man the case before we like critique Christian fundamentalism, Randall, like how would you steel man the case for like a Christian fundamentalism that you describe here? So on, on the one hand, so steel manning is, is meant to be the, the opposite of straw manning, where straw manning mm -hmm. is you give the sort of weakest presentation of an argument. Steel manning is you try to give the strongest presentation of the argument. Um, so to, to steel man fundamentalism is, first of all, to say that fundamentalists are very concerned with Christian orthodoxy, right? And they, they want to to continue to profess the orthodox Christian doctrines, and they want to protect Christian doctrine from corruption from the wider culture, from capitulation to the wider culture. Um, 
Now, I mean, I think sometimes, and we can talk about this, you know, they go definitely too far in the other direction, but but that's certainly a noble purpose. We we should, as Christians, be concerned to protect or maintain the faith once for all given unto the saints, Jude 3. Uh, and fundamentalists certainly aspire to do that, whether they successfully do it or not is another question, but they certainly aspire to do it, and that's to be admired. I mean, another thing is just to go back in terms of the issue of contempt. As I mentioned, I think John Loftus is contemptuous of Christians. And I think very often Christian fundamentalists are contemptuous of outsiders as well. It goes both ways. But the more that you understand how people come to hold the beliefs that they do, the less likely you are to be contemptuous of them because you begin to develop sympathy and empathy and understanding. And this is one of the benefits of writing a book like uh, the Christian Bellows, Christian Truth, or Timeless Truth in a World of Lies, is when I fleshed out the character of Christian Bellows, when I explained and described through the book how he came to hold the views that he does and why he thinks the way that he does, it created more sympathy in me for fundamentalists, because I'm beginning to think, yeah, you know, how does a person come to hold a particular view? You know, it's easy to write people off as just crazy or immoral or irrational if you haven't taken the time to walk a mile in their shoes. Well, writing a book like this or reading one is an opportunity to get into the mindset of another person and try to understand what it is that motivates them. Mm. Okay, that's really helpful, Randall. Um, I like to emphasize like like the good thing I guess you could see like maybe like in steel manning fundamentalism is like they are very concerned about orthodoxy and like what that is like I think you're gonna show as we go through this interview like is very different than like what they might say it is but I appreciate you kind of like bringing these things to light because I think it is helpful for people to understand like it's not like you know you don't want to make it like good guys bad guys so maybe let's just start to like kind of break this down Randall um in your book like you talk about a bunch of different like sections of where like fundamentalism goes wrong um, and the first thing you talk about is like how they describe truth. Uh, so like, where do fundamentalists go wrong when thinking about like what truth is? Well, back to the binary mindset. One big problem is the assumption that truth is only in here and not out there. Um, and what we have to appreciate is that all truth, uh, to borrow Arthur Holmes's simple but wonderful and important observation, is that truth is not simply limited to our community of faith, whatever that community may be, but it can be found in all sorts of places. And also, conversely, to realize that error or falsehood or corruption can be found within our community. I mean, this is a very important theme within the New Testament, whether it's Jesus warning that those that we assume to be sheep and those that we assume to be goats are not necessarily going to be exactly what we think they are. Right? There's a sober reminder that the in-group, out-group distinctions that we may be very quick to draw may not be the correct ones. Or when Paul warns us uh, to test ourselves to feel, see whether we really are in the faith, those are sober reminders that just as truth can be found out there, so it may be that what we have is not as much truth as we are apt to think. And so that is, uh, I think, an important reminder. Mm. So what do you think then, like, obviously when I think about like um, what we're talking about today, one of the things I always go back to is like, if you read a book, like I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, but like Frank Turek um, things about like, very, like a strong emphasis and like pointing out like logical, like contradictions. Like if you say like, Oh, there is no truth or like maybe it's true for you, but it's true for me things like that. Um, obviously, like I think most Christian apologists would like still 
have an issue with what they're like that kind of claim but like do you think like fundamental fundamentals sometimes might put too much on like jumping on the claim that someone makes along those lines well just to take uh the turek and geisler book you mentioned uh so i don't have enough faith to be an atheist one of the things wrong with that is the whole title assumes that faith is a quantum moving toward irrationality mm-hmm. so that um to have enough faith uh, is to become irrational. And that's just a, not a charitable understanding of good definition of what faith is. I mean, another thing, another problem with that, though, is that it's also grossly simplistic. So it assumes that if you just have enough knowledge, then you'll you'll never be an atheist, which gets back to the binary mindset that says the only reason people are atheists is because they're ignorant of the facts that I have or the facts that our community has. Well, I would invite any of your viewers to listen to Graham Oppie or to read a book by Graham Oppie. He's an Australian philosopher and an atheist. He's one of the most genteel and also one of the most intelligent people you're likely to meet. And he's not an atheist because he lacks the information that Frank Turek has. So uh, we need to recognize that things are a lot more complicated than that. And what that a book like that, the way that it frames issues is, I think that it, it wants to create a, what I said, I think ultimately a false confidence in the reader to think, yeah, so now I can be confident that Christianity ultimately has all the answers. And the only reason that these people don't agree with me is either because they're ignorant of the information that is in Turek's book or because they're somehow stubbornly resistant to it, mm-hmm. which I think is exactly the problem. Uh, one of the challenges is to recognize that very rational people of goodwill and very intelligent people can actually disagree with you or me about a particular issue. And part of Christian maturation is learning to recognize that fact and embrace it rather than to try to diminish it or pretend it doesn't exist. Mm. Okay, yeah, that's, that's super helpful, Randall. Um, so we look at like truth. Um, one of the things that's really interesting, like with fundamentalism is like looking at like arguments for God. Um, and there's a lot of different like places here you can look at with like, maybe like the problem of evil or like cosmology or morality. Um, so maybe you want to just like pick one, maybe like your biggest, like where you're like, Oh, I, I, I struggle with one fundamentalist say this and like, with regards to, like how they might go wrong with arguments for God. Well, in the book, there's a there's a chapter where Christian Bellows quickly surveys arguments for God's existence, including you know, the mainstays of the teleological or design argument, a cosmological argument, a moral argument, and also briefly dealing with the problem of evil from the negative side. Uh, One of the themes in that chapter, however, is that Christian Bellos's understanding of these arguments is thin, and his um, critical engagement with objections to his arguments is even thinner. And what that illustrates is I think often uh, a danger in conservative or fundamentalist apologetics is to give people quick and easy answers, which often depends on oversimplification to the point of distortion or even caricature, which it puts us in danger of something like the straw man fallacy that we were referring to earlier. So I've often heard, to come back, let's say, to one example, the problem of evil, I've heard Christian apologists talk about believing that the problem of evil is is not only that it's not an insuperable problem, but but it's it's not a especially difficult one. That we have perfectly satisfactory theodicies and defenses to deal with the problem of evil. And I always come back as an example in response to that to somebody like C.S. Lewis, 
who wrote the book, The Problem of Pain, one of the great and most influential theodicies of the 20th century. And then a couple decades later, his wife, Joy, is diagnosed with cancer and then slowly succumbs to the disease. And afterwards, C.S. Lewis didn't go back and reread his theodicy and say, oh, this is so satisfactory now. I've I've, I've sorted out the problem of evil. Rather, he was compelled to write a completely different book, right? The a Grief Observed, which was a lament in grief. Sometimes you have to sit in sackcloth and ashes, in other words. Sometimes you don't have a simple apologetic response. Um, if I had, uh, my daughter's 21 years old now and healthy and doing great in university, but God forbid if, let's say as a child, she had been diagnosed with terminal cancer, what would that have done to my Christian faith? Or if I was, when I was a child, if I had been repeatedly sexually molested by a clergy member that I trusted, what would that have done to my faith? What different perspective on the problem of evil and suffering in the world might I have had had I undergone those experiences? And when I think about issues like that, it just, to me, underscores all the more that if we as Christian apologists want to interact in a serious and responsible way, both with arguments for Christianity and also objections to it, we need to consider the depth and weight of the evidence on all sides. And even if you don't have, here's one of the things, even if you don't have all the quote-unquote right answers, what that will do is raise to inestimable degrees your credibility to the audience, the very audience that you want to meet. If you show that you are willing to present the objections to your view as strongly as possible, rather than to, to straw man them, and if you'll recognize the weaknesses in your view and the questions you have with your view and the ongoing doubts you may have, that won't weaken your position. It will only strengthen it. Mm. Okay, that's really helpful, Randall. Um, so one of the things that I think was really helpful that you brought up here is like realizing like the personal side of the problem of evil. Because like even if you have like a really good like theodicy or defense, what you're saying is like we have to understand like when we're engaging in like these arguments that like evil is a very real like personal thing. Like people have experienced evils and some have experienced like horrendous evils. Like you talked about like abuse and neglect, like these things. And this has to be considered when you are in like maybe like in a debate or anything like this where you're just like, oh, like, well, here's my free will defense. Or, oh, here's my soul building or defeat or like whatever. Um, if you consider when they reject it, it might not just be purely because like, um, like there's a lot going on here. And I think that's something really important that you emphasized here, Randall. Yeah, thanks. So what do you think then about like, cosmological arguments because like sometimes you hear people say like i have this very vivid like memory from when i was listening to a podcast a couple years ago and there was this like very popular like christian like apologetic youtuber that people would be like oh yeah he's a great christian apologist and what he said is in the podcast was like he's like sometimes you know like it was something along the lines of like i'm not really sure it was like even if i'm like doubting god i always go back to like the beginning of the universe and i'm paraphrasing here and I just remember that, like, even, like, Christians and atheists both agree, like, the universe came into existence out of nothing. And, like, to me, I'm like, well, that only makes sense if God exists. Um, so what are your thoughts there with regards to, like, the universe coming into existence out of nothing? And, like, what do you think fundamentalists can go wrong there? Well, so I, I think, first of all, I mean, with the cosmological arguments, they are, of course, not a single argument. There's a whole family of arguments there, and they're ancient arguments. They, they go back to the ancient Greeks. They've, they've been around for 2,500, 2,400 years. And I think they're interesting arguments and good arguments. 
I think that people can reasonably disagree, first of all, however, on the arguments. And that's true of virtually all arguments in philosophy. Sometimes people have said, well, for an argument for God's existence to be good or to be worthwhile, it must compel belief. It must be a quote unquote proof in the highest sense. But if that was our standard for what a good argument is going to be, then there probably are no good arguments for God's existence. But by the same token, there's probably no good arguments for anything because you can always get people that are in, that are disagreeing and debating arguments. Um, so what I think we have to do, first of all, is just have reasonable expectations. I'd like to say that for an argument to be a good argument, so it has to be valid. In other words, the conclusion has to follow from the premises and then it has to have at least plausible, if not compelling premises. And the, the idea of, of whether a premise is compelling or not is going to depend often on the, the perceiver, right? the person who's contemplating that premise. And two different people can contemplate the same premise. Uh, let's say everything that begins to exist has a cause. Right? And some people, you know, some people who defend a cosmological argument like the Kalam, they're going to appeal to uh, a posteriori patterns of, of evidence throughout history of things always having causes, or they might appeal to an innate rational intuition that everything has a cause. Well, let's just take the last one. You're going to find that other people are going to say, you know what, I'm just not compelled that that is mm -hmm. in fact an intuitively compelling premise. And so you may find yourself spinning your wheels already on that first premise when you're trying to win a person over. So, I mean, it's just about having reasonable expectations. I think the arguments are interesting. One of the things with Christian Ballos in the book is that he thinks if you don't accept his arguments, then again, you're either irrational or you're sinfully opposed to him. Uh, and I think we have to recognize that it's just not the case. I, there's a professor at the University of Alberta here in Edmonton, where I live. His name is Don Page. I mean, I haven't talked with him for a few years. He might be retired now, but uh, Don, for years, was the professor, I think, of astrophysics and the origin of, of uh, galaxies or something like that. Some long title at the University of Alberta. And he studied under Stephen Hawking in the 1970s. And he's also a Mennonite. He's a he's a, a Christian. And I've been on panels with Don Page. He's a deeply devout Christian. And he doesn't think that cosmological arguments are very good. For him, they're not very compelling. Uh, now, there are other people like William Lane Craig, who I respect, who obviously are among the leading defenders of cosmological arguments. And I think that you can just have reasonable people disagreeing about these things. Probably the last thing I want to say on this is, is when an argument draws upon science, and high level knowledge about the contemporary state of natural science, then we should tread carefully and not pretend to know more than we do. When I was learning apologetics back in the 80s and early 90s, there's a real emphasis on mentioning or on memorizing factoids. So I, I could quote a scientific paper or a scientific or some scientist who had made some point that would have been supportive of my interpretation of a cosmological argument. But did I actually understand the physics? Did I actually understand the mathematics at play here? Did I understand why people disagreed with him? No. Uh, and that kind of thing, it at some point can just become intellectual posing, that we're trying to look like we know more than we do. So I am very happy when it comes to issues where apologetic arguments draw upon the deliverances of contemporary science. I'm going to be very cautious and tread carefully, recognizing my own very significant limitations in the subject matter. Mm -hmm.
Okay, that's really helpful, Randall. Um, where do you think fundamentalists like go wrong about science then? Well, I think one area where they go wrong about science, uh, so much of it comes back to the binary mindset. And then I'll introduce something else in a, in a moment as well. But in terms of the binary mindset, so there is an immediate mistrust or distrust of institutions and persons who are outside of the fundamentalist Christian community. So for example, if you have the National Association of Science and they have a particular conclusion on human biological evolution or the age of the earth or something else, yeah, but that's a secular institution and we automatically are suspicious of it. I remember a, a book cover from, from um, uh, Ken Ham, which sort of captures and encapsulates this perspective. The title simply was Evolution, the Lie. And then it shows a snake uh, in the garden about to, uh, with the apple, sort of tempting Adam and Eve. And so here's the idea that evolution or that the, the fact that this is a consensus opinion among contemporary scientists and biologists in particular, that is simply a result of the work of the devil and the lies of the devil. And there's not a serious engagement with how scientific consensus can emerge within the wider world. And so instead, conservative or fundamentalist Christians, they develop their own institutions like, uh, you know, Answers in Genesis or the Institute of Creation Research. And they say, well, this is where real science is done. And then they maybe have, have some interaction with the Discovery Institute. But even the Discovery Institute's typically seen as, by many fundamentalists to be a little too liberal. Uh, but they certainly don't have anything to do with wider, quote-unquote, secular institutions. So I think that really loses how much there is knowledge and wisdom outside of the fundamentalist Christian community. And for the most part, I would say it's also very selective. So they mm -hmm. have that skepticism, but yet when it comes to other areas, like let's say the treatment of cancer or something, well, then they will certainly welcome the insights of the wider secular world, but just not when it impinges on their views. Now, this leads me to the second point with respect to science. And this is the idea that often the fundamentalist mindset, when it comes to scripture or the Bible, is driven by a hermeneutical or interpretive principle that is often called the literal where possible principle. The idea there is that you interpret the Bible literally where possible. The assumption being, first of all, that a literal interpretation of the Bible is a neutral interpretation, which is something I would immediately challenge. I think, frankly, that's a naive assumption. Language, uh, literal literalism or literal interpretation is not somehow a default interpretation or a neutral one or a less risk averse or sort of a more risk averse approach to language. Language is saturated with metaphor. In fact, the very language of saturation compares language to something that can soak up a liquid. We don't even think about it. We, we, we talk about the leg of a chair without realizing that's a dead metaphor for the fact that a chair, a piece of furniture is being compared to having a supporting device that's like a human being's leg. And even the language of dead metaphor is itself a metaphor of a metaphor no longer being active is now described as dead. This is how much language itself is not literal as a default. Some language should be interpreted literally, some not. And you can't assume that literal interpretation of six days of creation in Genesis 
one to, to two, or whether uh, in Revelation 20, a thousand year millennium, whether that should be interpreted literally or not, or whether there's a literal pit in which the devil is thrown in Revelation 20. You can't assume that the literal interpretation is obviously the right one. The other thing that I would just add there is that there's also a naivete that what I think is literal in the Bible is obviously what these readers who read in a different language and culture two to 3,000 years ago would have assumed is literal. And that's an mm -hmm. enormous, and I think a presumptuous view. So rather, we should try to understand what they understood the text to mean in their original uh, context, historical, social, and religious context. Mm. So you think that like when we're looking at Christian fundamentalism and approaching the Bible, what's happening is is it's almost like it's like you're reading it like almost how like we'd read your book, Randall. Like we're looking at it and just like reading it for face value and like seeing like that's what it is and like taking it and not considering like the context of like, oh, this is a book like 2000 to 3000 years old, depending on where you're reading. And there's so many different like things happening. You don't have to understand like, what did the first century Israel think? What did the sec second temple Jew think when they were reading like a certain passage? Yeah. And, and the fact that you raised my book is a great illustration here. If somebody picked up the book, Christian Bellows, Timeless Truth in a World of Lies, and read the whole thing literally, you'd have completely missed the whole point of the book, right? It is a satire. And so you have to read it as a satire or you'll completely miss the point. And when you get to um, a psalm or when you get to a proverb or when you get to the gospel or when you get to the cosmogonic creation narrative of Genesis 1, in all of these cases, we're dealing with different genre. And you have mm -hmm. to try to understand what is going on in this text. How should I interpret it? And if you interpret something literally where the literal interpretation was not the intended interpretation, then you do violence to the text. Hmm. I think it was helpful for me, like when thinking about the Bible to realize like, like you have this little picture, like as a kid, I feel like where it's written, like, like, Gen like Genesis happens and then motive and then God's like, okay, what's next to put in this book? Exodus. So what's next? Leviticus. Leviticus is after Ex Exodus, right? I didn't mess that up. Yeah. Um, and it's like, like we have this vision of it's like, it's like, it's almost like chapters in like a single book. Um, whereas when you think about like the books of the Bible, like a lot of these have like different origin stories. Um, there's so much happening. Like it wasn't like Paul wasn't writing like second Corinthians thinking, Oh, this will be great to fit in right after first Corinthians. Like it's like, it's different things. And it's amazing how, what God did, but it's not, it's different than how, like I thought of it as like an evangelical growing up, like the formation of the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, for example, like like the Deuteronomic history. So this is um, when we move from Exodus, uh, Leviticus, not Leviticus, but uh, Exodus, Numbers, uh, Deuteronomy, on to the end of Second uh, Samuel, and there is a narrative there of the history of Israel. And one common view is that this was compiled. I mean, the view that I was raised with is that well, Moses wrote it all. I mean, Moses at least wrote the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But a more common view today held by biblical scholars is that the, the Deuteronomic history was compiled in the 600s and 500s BC, around the time of the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon. And if, if that's when it was compiled, and if it was compiled by editors from pre-existing independent sources, well, that's a very different story and a much more complicated one. And uh, the historical origins, where the text came to be, who wrote the text, under what conditions, that is going to affect potentially the meaning and the significance and the implications of it. So these are important questions that we cannot avoid. 
Mm. Okay. Yeah. That's really helpful. So thank you for that, Randall. So what do you think about like doctrine then? So we talked about like the Bible and like how you think fundamentalists can have like a wrong perception of the Bible, kind of just reading things as like literal until proven otherwise. Um, What do you think about like Christian doctrine? Where do you think they go wrong? Well, where do they go wrong with Christian doctrine? Well, I mean, it depends on the fundamentalist, but uh, I mean, I think generally, so fundamentalists are very strong on affirming the things like the incarnation, the atonement. Sometimes they have a particular understanding of atonement and they can confuse that understanding with the atonement in particular, sorry, I should say the atonement simplicator or just itself. So for example, it's very common for fundamentalists to have a penal substitutionary theory of atonement. And then to make the mistake that that theory, which is a theory that's only been held by a subset of Christians throughout history, that that is the doctrine of atonement. And in fact, it's not. Many Christians have rejected that theory of atonement and adopted another theory. And many Christians don't have a theory of atonement. So the fact that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself does not require a Christian to accept a particular theory of how that occurred, such as the idea that Christ suffered in our place as a vicarious atonement and the Father's wrath was poured out upon him and he satisfied the Father's wrath in virtue of his death as the perfect sacrifice. You're not obliged to believe that story in order to accept the atonement. And again, many Christians, and frankly, a majority of Christians throughout history have not accepted the penal substitutionary theory of atonement. So that's Mm -hmm. one place where fundamentalists, I think, get into trouble. Another place is in their understanding of Scripture, Sometimes uh, some fundamentalists are in danger of placing scripture almost in the role of Christ. So you get this term bibliolatry, this concern that that scripture is being elevated to a status that it was never intended to occupy. When when fundamentalists, for example, which is this is language you can hear, uh, they say things like, "All truth is found in the Bible," or "All theological truth is found in the Bible." Now, none of those, neither of those is true. There's all sorts of truth that is not found in the Bible. Uh, just for example, if you want to know who won a Grammy last night, I personally don't care. I'm not interested in award shows. But if you did want to know, you're not going to find that in the Bible. Um, now, if you want to know truths about the natural world and science, you get it from scientists. You're not going to get it from the Bible. What about theological truth? Is all theological truth in the Bible? Again, no, that's it's not the case. For example, the doctrine of the Trinity, if you look at the Council of Nicaea in 381 and the Creed of Nicaea that was formed out of that council, the Creed of Nicaea aims to provide a faithful understanding of what is revealed in Scripture. But it also goes beyond it, and it uses extra-biblical language in formulating it. There is nowhere in the Bible that you find a verse that says there is one God who exists in three equally divine Uh, and distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, there is a version of John, uh, 1 John 5, 7, uh, where some well-meaning monk in the early church put an interpolation in there to try to get a verse like what I just described, and it's called the Yohanan Kama. And you find it in the King James, but you don't find it in modern Bible translations because it's not actually in there. It's not in the earliest Mm. texts. So there is no Bible verse that gives us the doctrine of the Trinity. The Christian doctrine of the Trinity is a result of progressive revelation as the Holy Spirit led the church into all truth. This is my take. 
and to understand more fully the full implications of what is in Scripture. But just as in the Old Testament, you don't have a doctrine of incarnation or Trinity. So in the New Testament, you don't have a clearly articulated doctrine of the Trinity yet. You have the fundamental building blocks for it. But those building blocks are only assembled by the church over a few centuries until you finally get to the period like the council of, of uh, the second council, ecumenical council in 381, where the, the Nicene Creed was formulated. Mm. Okay, so this is helpful, Randall. Um, so if I'm understanding like a general strand here, like when they're looking at like the atonement or like scripture or like the Trinity with like fundamentalism and doctrine, like the problem you see is it's almost like they choose like a particular like doctrine, um, like say like in like this debate over like the atonement, they choose something like penal substitution and it's like, it's this way or it's the highway. Um, and, ev and everything is either like egregiously wrong or like heretical like I, i'm remembering like in my mind here like your critique of like at least the children's that we talked about in like progressive christianity where um you thought that like she was like super strong on like penal substitution that she kind of like cast off any other view that wasn't penal substitution so do you think i have you right that that's kind of like the problem you see with like christian fundamentalism in like doctrine well certainly it, it tends to be to use the term schismatic so they're, they're ready to divide with other Christians over issues that are non-essential, such as a particular understanding of atonement or another one, uh, understanding of hell. So the assumption that hell must be eternal conscious torment. Uh, there are different views of hell, right? Including the annihilationist view of a resurrection to a punishment that results in the cessation of existence. And there's also the universalist view, which is a view that goes back to the early church and was in fact dominant arguably in the late patristic era in the Eastern Orthodox church. And so you get Christians like Gregory of Nyssa, who was key to the, the second ecumenical council. And he was a universalist. So you've always had these views in the church. And even if they're minority opinions, they were still considered acceptable by the wider Orthodox church. We might call mere Christianity. So if you come along and you say, no, if you don't accept my view of hell, or if you don't accept my view of the atonement, then you're not a Christian at all, or I can't fellowship with you. I think that's a tragedy. I think that what people that do that are doing is they're being schismatics and they're failing to recognize. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, let me put it this way. So the call of ecumenism, which is the call for Christians to find common ground with one another, is not a lowest common denominator pursuit. Rather, it's pursuing the deepest ties that bind. And so Christ, the incarnation, the atonement, the triune God, those are the deepest ties that bind. Mm -hmm. uh, but there can be all sorts of difference and disagreement over issues like how to understand the nature of the Trinity or the incarnation or the current culture war issues, whether it's precisely how to define marriage or whether elective abortion should be legal in society. I don't think you should be making those as boundary issues and say, you have to agree with me on this or I can't fellowship with you anymore. I think mm. that's a mistake. So the, the problem then is like when we're looking at like these like um, making these like secondary issues, like the main issues that you think that like fundamentalism, like people are like casting people out and dividing over things that are like, yes, important topics. But these are these are things that like we should be splitting over um, and like we're missing that like holistic, like Christian ecumenical ecumenicalism or like whatever that word is. With the, um, yeah. um, that's what we're missing here. Yes. I mean, another example of it is uh, in contemporary American society with the whole polarization between Democrats and Republicans. Hmm. In the book, uh, Christian Bellos is a Republican. He's a big Trump supporter. And he repeatedly calls Democrats Democrats. 
And mm. this is not a term that I invented for the book. This is a term I've seen Christian Republicans use about Democrats. Mm. And they cannot, some of these people, some fundamentalist Christian Republicans cannot understand how you could claim to be a Christian and be a Democrat. And the thing is, each side has certain insights. For example, I'm very pro-life. Uh, I believe I have concerns about elective access to abortion. I, I don't think it's it's moral to kill a fetus at three months simply for elective abortion because you don't want to carry that fetus to term. But I also understand how people can disagree with me on that. And I also recognize that the issue of abortion is a morally complex one. For example, a 14-year-old who is raped uh, and potentially impregnated, I think should be given access to a morning after pill to prevent the implantation of the embryo so that uh, that child will not undergo the incredible trauma of, of giving birth and, and facing not only the emotional trauma of giving birth to the child of their rapist, but also the physiological trauma that their body is going to under, undergo. And I also recognize that people can disagree with me on that. But this is one of the things that we have to recognize is that Christians exist across the political and social spectrum. Mm. And if your grid or framework is a binary one in which you can't recognize Christians who can vote differently than you or think differently about an issue, then I think you've really impoverished yourself and your understanding of the Christian tradition. Mm. So we need to be able to like recognize these differences and be like, we can still like have communion and fellowship while another while being like, Randall, you're really wrong on that issue, but I love you as a brother in Christ. And like, we can agree in this debate, but like we can still have that love for each other, even in spite of like issues on, on important topics. You know, there, there, there's a joke uh, that was told by uh, a comedian, Emo Phillips, I think his name was. And it was actually some years ago, it was voted the number one religion joke of all time. Now bear mm -hmm. with me. The joke takes a couple minutes to set up. But this fellow, he's walking along and he sees uh, a, a guy that's about to jump off a bridge. And he says, don't jump. And the guy says, well, why? And he says, well, do you believe in God? And the, the guy said, yeah. And then the fellow said, well, me too. So then he said to the man on the bridge, uh, what, are you a Christian or a Jew? And he says, well, I'm a Christian. And he, I said, he said, me too. So then he says, what franchise? And the guy on the bridge said, I'm a Baptist. And he said, well, me too. Are you a Northern Baptist or a Southern Baptist? And he said, a Northern Baptist. And I said, me too. And then he said, well, are you a Northern Baptist Great Lakes region or a Northern Baptist Plains region? And he said, Northern Baptist Great Lakes region. And he said, me too. Then he said, are you a Northern Baptist Great Lakes region council of 1879 or Northern Baptist Great Lakes region council of 1912? And he said, Northern Baptist Great Lakes region council of 1912. And then the first guy said, die, heretic. And he pushed him off. Now, the idea there is that you agree with somebody about 99% of something, and yet that 1% is going to be enough for you to divide with them over. And I think that is, I mean, it's meant to be humorous, but it's also meant to be tragic. It's meant to be a commentary mm -hmm. on our penchant for, for division. And certain Christian traditions are known for that more than others. Baptists, which is my background, are generally known for that. We, we tend to be a little bit more schismatic. And Christian fundamentalists, likewise, tend to be a little bit more schismatic. Other Christians, such as Anglicans or Catholics, tend to strive for a broader comprehension of dissenting perspectives under one umbrella. And I mean, I think we can all challenge one another on this. There are times when you have to divide, but there are also times when you have to seek common ecumenical agreement and a shared faith. Mm. Okay, that's really helpful. So thank you 
for that, Randall. Um, and I think it's I think the joke's helpful because it helps emphasize the importance of like unity and like realizing that like we can't we don't need to divide and like cut people off for like little um, matters. That can, we can still hold them as important without cutting people off. So we talked about a lot of things here. What about like holiness now? This is the last like big section of the book. Like, what do you think? Like, how do fundamentalists go wrong with thinking about Christian holiness? Yes, that's a big one. Well, um, so for example, in the book, Christian Bellows, he talks really fiercely and unapologetically and boldly about the evils of gay marriage or homosexual marriage, as he says. At the same time, he's been divorced twice and is now married to his third wife. And it's also clear that um, his first two divorces appear to have been for a reason other than porneia on behalf of his spouse. Now, Jesus talked about this in Mark 10 and Matthew 19. When he talked about divorce, Jesus says that if you divorce your spouse for any reason, other than porneia, and then marry another person. Now, porneia, you can broadly translate as marital unfaithfulness. So unless your spouse has cheated on you in some significant way, uh, you cannot divorce your spouse and remarry another. And if you do, you are now engaged in an adulterous relationship. Jesus mm -hmm. seems to be pretty unequivocal on that. And yet we have uh, divorce rates within evangelical Christianity, and I assume remarriage rates as well, which are comparable to the non-evangelical and secular society. Christians, evangelicals, don't divorce at a lower rate than the wider society. Uh, and that certainly is a statistic Ron Sider had in his um, book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, for example. So what this means, well, so what this means is like Christian Bellows has never thought about this. He's never thought about the fact that by the letter of the law, as Jesus seems to, to give it in Matthew and Mark, he's in adultery because he's no longer married to his first wife. And yet at the same time, he drops this stentorian, unqualified, confident judgment upon gay people who are, are seeking a marital institution. And so what that is meant to do then is to say, there's something here about the whole speck and plank, right? Uh, when you, before you look at critiquing other people and their failure to live up to the beliefs that you profess, make sure that you are yourself following those same beliefs. Mm. So that's, that's a big theme, the theme, the danger of moral hypocrisy. Now, another thing that I would just add to that is there's also, I think, often within fundamentalism, and I mean, it's this is true with many Christians. Right? It's not as with many of these things we've said, but certainly you see it in fundamentalism is that there's a sort of narrow or truncated moral vision. So the things that that um, that people really focus on as Christian fundamentalists often is like fighting gay marriage and fighting abortion. And, you know, maybe there's one or two other things, all sorts of other things just completely fly under the radar, such as climate justice. The fact that there could be more than 1 billion climate refugees by the end of the century because we've done nothing on human-induced climate change or we've acted insufficiently on that. Problems of, of uh, inequitable distribution of things like health care or of people unable to have a living wage or the privatization of 
particular institutions in society that used to be available to everybody uh, and whether the profit motive then ends up excluding certain people from participating in certain institutions. I mean, you can go on all day and talk about things such as, here's one, just, just to give one specific example. So the way that conservative Christians in America have talked about refugees on the southern border, uh, referring to them simply as quote-unquote illegals, uh, showing which which they're often they're they're not. These are these are people that are coming uh, and making a legitimate appeal that is recognized under international law for seeking asylum because their life is ostensibly at risk from the country of origin. Let's say Guatemala, for example, or El Salvador, mm. and rather than receive a welcome and a serious consideration of their claims, they are dehumanized and they are objectified. Uh, Fox News during the midterms in 2018 was promoting stories comparing uh, migrants on the southern border with leprosy, suggesting mm. that they're bringing leprosy into the country. And th this kind of approach seems to me so far from what Jesus talks about in terms of what a sheep is defined as in Matthew 25. So those are those are just some of the issues I think of when I'm considering the issue of holiness. Mm. So it's almost like one of your big things that you struggle with, Randall, is like in critiquing Christian fundamentalism is you're saying like there's a lot of critiques from the camp within on like the outside. Like you talked about like the migrant issue, like um, the refugees um, or like different things. Like you could point to like questions about like how they – like interact with like contemporary culture um and you're saying like hey there's a lot of problems like sure like there's problems here but like there's a lot of problems from within that they're not really pointing out like you mentioned like the divorce rate and whatnot and that's kind of like the big problem is you think it's almost like they haven't like um got the log out of their own eye and they're picking at the specs of other people well and uh, this is something of course we all have logs in our eyes and this is just the human condition right we're all moral hypocrites to some degree but the, the point of this book was was to point out some of, some of the issues that I think are moral hypocrisy within fundamentalist Christianity. Yeah. Now I could, yeah, I could write a book about uh, a, a a satire of progressive Christianity as well. Uh, I even have a character in mind. I call him J.C. Cool, and he's like a really cool progressive pastor, right? Jesus Christ, cool. J.C. Cool. He's he's a really fashionable fashion savvy pastor in california who's got some hollywood stars going to his church and he's got an enormously popular instagram account you get the picture i mean this is the kind of way you could begin to satirize progressive christianity he quotes the dalai lama more than he quotes the apostle paul i mean it could go on from there uh, mm -hmm. i think you can satirize every tradition i think every christian tradition is deserving of some satire and some social critique um, and so we just always have to be careful not to just worry about the other guy. I mean, I, I saw the other day uh, a Trump supporter who's being interviewed on television at a recent Trump event, and he was wearing a ball cap. And the ball cap said, I could, and I'll change the word for your audience. He said, I could crap a better president, a reference presumably to Joe Biden, saying mm -hmm. that Joe Biden is even worse than feces. While he's wearing that ball cap, this guy was saying to the person interviewing him, we need to have more respectable dialogue today. Hmm. And the irony of the ball cap juxtaposed with what he was saying he ostensibly believed in was sad. Mm -hmm. But how many of us have a ball cap on our head that says something 
obscene, even as we're lamenting the the decline of civil discourse. So I, yeah. I think that at the end of the day, we shouldn't worry about critiquing people outside of our community. We have to turn the spotlight back on ourselves. Mm, that's really good. Thanks for bringing it up, Randall. Um, so we talked a lot about like what how fundamentalists go wrong. Anything else you want to say with regards to like how fundamentalists go wrong? Well, I just think that, uh, I mean, there's another things like the dispensationalism or a sort of otherworldly mindset that uh, kind of anticipates the world being destroyed in fire and we're going to be whisked out of the world. And um, things like that is in a danger. I've already addressed the anti-intellectualism. I think sometimes there's a patriarchal mindset that's common in, in fundamentalism. And there are other things as well. But the, I think the thing that I would just want to underscore as we wind down is, is on all sides, this issue I addressed earlier, we have to be careful about contempt for one another. Mm. I think that this is increasingly in our social media landscape where everybody's has an echo chamber of their own perspectives being regurgitated back to them, whether you're on Twitter or you're on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok, that we those the algorithms that run those social media websites encourage and they're geared toward encouraging contempt for one another because yeah. the angrier you are the more contemptuous you are of other people the more you'll engage with tiktok the more that you'll tweet the more that more you'll post on facebook and the end result of that is that we become deeply contemptuous of other people and so i certainly don't want the result of this exercise to be propagating contempt for Christian fundamentalists. Rather, I think, and I hope at the end of it, that we can all kind of take a step back and think, where do I need to change? Mm, that's really good and really thoughtful. So thank you for that, Randall. Um, so we talked a lot about like where fundamentalists go wrong. I'd be curious at the end, like what good do you think you can take from like Christian fundamentalism? Like what are, what are the good things that you can see that like Christians can use as we continue this dialogue? Well, one thing, um, I've already talked about some things, uh, the concern for doctrine and so on. Another thing is is uh, historically Christian fundamentalists, uh, while I said that they can sometimes be in danger of bibliolatry by saying, for example, that all truth comes from the Bible, nonetheless, what is to be affirmed there is a, a, a high commitment to reading Scripture, a high commitment to memorizing Scripture, uh, also a high commitment typically to the church. Typically, I think fundamentalists have a higher rate of donation, of tithing than, let's say, mainstream Christians or liberal Christians. Uh, and even if it's not much more, like one of the statistics I heard uh, some years ago was that the more conservative Christians tithe at closer to 4% and more liberal Christians at 3%. I mean, that's pretty sad across the, the board. But nonetheless, for the most part, fundamentalists do tend to tithe more. They are then more giving. They, they do often volunteer in various ministries and so on. So I think those are all things to be affirmed. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and then just to begin to learn from one another and try to understand where the other is coming from. Mm. So the commitment is something super valuable that even if you may disagree with like what they believe, like as Christians, like regardless of where we are, we should be committed and we should be giving and serving and attending church and like all these things. They are super important. So. 
Randall, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate you and your work. Um, I encourage people to check out this book um, from Christian Bellows, Timeless Truth in a World of Lies, a Fundamentalist Apologetic Satire, edited by Randall Rouser. Um, Randall, do you have any like last thoughts or things you want to say before we wrap up here? I think I think I've covered covered a lot of ground in the last hour. So I'll just say, Zach, thanks a lot for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on, Randall. I appreciate your time. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to Here in Apologetics today. Uh, we're super blessed to have you here. Um, and if you value what we do, uh, be sure to like, subscribe, all that fun stuff. I'll leave a link down below to Randall where you can follow him, connect with him. And yeah, that's that. If you value what we do, consider becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash Here in Apologetics. Uh, you can become a patron for little as a dollar a month, pennies a day, and that would be huge for your support. Um, so if you listen for a while, just please consider supporting. And that's it. Have a good, good one, everyone, and God bless. We'll catch you next time.